Well, we're going to begin a new study uh, today. Obviously, you know, we finished uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, and then we sort of had some other little, you know, studies in between to kind of uh, just uh, hold us over a bit, bit before we started kind of a new uh, study. And, uh, you know, as thinking this through, it's, it's, it's been said, this is a quote I came across, that history is a series of key moments in the otherwise undistinguished flow of human life. And the idea is that life generally goes by with little of importance happening, you know. We, we kind of go through years and years of just really the same things happening. But then once in a while, a great crisis arises, and the nature of the next period of, of history is really determined by how the leaders deal with and react to that crisis. And we can just look back in history and, and see that, right? I mean, what a different world would we live in today if England's response to uh, Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939 would have been different, right, to not go to war? Um, what would our world look like today if America didn't respond to the terrorist attacks 9-11 uh, the way they did, right? But you can look at our world afterwards, and it certainly has been changed forever. Flight has never returned the same, right? I still have to take my shoes off when I go get on a plane and pour out my liquids and those kinds of things. And today, uh, I think we find ourselves in a similar crisis. I, I think that our future has been already and will be forever changed, and it will be as a result of how the leaders have chosen to react to the crisis that we have. But I'm not going to speak on that uh, today. I want to take you back to another such crisis, um, and it's a pivotal point in history, and it's recorded in God's Word. And the date is 520 B.C. Now, that date might not ring any bells in your mind. Um, none of us were around. <laughs> And many history and Bible scholars may not even consider it a pivotal point in history, but God thought it important enough that he sent a prophet to deal with the issue, to change the course of what was taking place, and he recorded it in his word. The prophet is Haggai. Now, I grew up pronouncing it Haggai, and we were at a conference yesterday, and Phil Vickery pronounced it Haggai. I got a lot of flack from British people saying Haggai. There's a British guy pronouncing it the same way I learned. But um, uh, apparently I listened to pronunciation, Haggai is the way it's supposed to be pronounced. Haggai will be forgiving on anything yet. But don't turn to that, that book yet. Because to just jump into a book like that, we got to set up the history, and there's a lot of history. And I was going to load up some pictures and kind of guide you through that, and none of that worked. And so instead, I've enlisted the volunteer of seven uh, people in the room. And you guys can come on up here with your props and your, your name tags right now. Just come up here next to me. And as I go through the history here, my hope is that with a little visual stimulation, it will be more memorable for you. Because maybe you're like me. Uh, I like history. I, don't, I love history, actually. I love the history. But, but yeah, you guys hang out here. I'll get them going. Um, but, but if you just kind of drone on about names and dates and places, like you, your, your eyes are going to glaze over and you're going to be sitting there going, I've lost it completely. So instead, I thought, well, we'll get some young people here to help me out. Now, I can go way back. I'm going to go a little bit back to just an area maybe that we're familiar with. I'm going to go back to the, uh, the divided kingdom of Israel, okay? The divided kingdom of Israel. Now, to back up, the kingdom of Israel had three kings. It had King Saul, then it had King David, then it had King Solomon. And we're going to start with King Solomon. Solomon is with us today. Solomon, come on up to the stage here so everyone can see you, all right? Now, they're just going to kind of be around and present so that you can see and don't even worry about the verses that I'm showing up here. I'll be reading them to you as well. But uh, it starts here with, with uh, Solomon, because the, the, the kingdom became divided. 
after Solomon's reign. Again, remember, he's the third king. He's the son of King David. And the reason is, is that he turned from the Lord. We are told that Solomon loved many foreign women. But in 1 Kings 11, verse 2, we're told, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But we're told Solomon clung to these in love. He was warned not to intermarry with the women of the land, um, but he clung to these in love. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. His heart was turned from the Lord, and he began to set up high places to the gods that these women worshipped. The god of Chemosh, uh, the abomination of the people of Moab. The god of Molech, the abomination of the Anamites. Just to name a few, Solomon set up pillars and places for these people to worship there in those places. So because of that, now just step aside for the moment. You're good. Yeah, yeah, right where you are. All right. Because he's going to do that, God is going to make a change. And so he begins to raise up adversaries against Solomon. You read about him in 1 Kings 11. I'm just going to give you one of them because he's the key player. One of them is named Jeroboam. Where's my Jeroboam? There he is. Jeroboam, come on up onto that side of the stage. There's Jeroboam in his Davy Crockett hat. Jeroboam at the time is working for Solomon, okay? When you read about it, he's a superintendent of the forced labor. Remember Solomon forced people to work for him? He's a superintendent of the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Now, God has got a plan for Jeroboam. And a lot of times the way God spoke to people in the Old Testament is through what? Prophets, right? You didn't have all of God's word. The prophet he uses is Ahijah the Shilonite, which is right here in the cloak. Ahijah the Shilonite going up to Jeroboam. Ahijah the Shilonite goes to Jeroboam because Ahijah has been given a message from the Lord. Ahijah is wearing a brand new cloak you can see today. Lovely, isn't it? Um, Ahijah goes to Jeroboam, catches him on the way out of Jerusalem, takes the cloak that she's wearing, don't really take this cloak, and and rips it into 12 pieces, all right? Rips it into 12 pieces, but gives Solomon 10 of those pieces. And it says this in 1 Kings 11.31, He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. So there you go, tear it up. 10 tribes are going to be given to to Jeroboam. Thank you, Ahijah. Your role is done. You can come on down. All right, so that is what Ahijah does to Jeroboam. I'm missing those parts. I'm not really sure. Now, so Jeroboam has just got a prophecy. You're going to be the next king. You're going to get 10 of the 12 tribes. Y'all following so far? Solomon hears of this prophecy. What does Solomon want to do if he hears that someone else is going to take the kingdom? Solomon wants to kill Jeroboam. Don't worry, you're not going to die today. Because instead of killing Jeroboam, Jeroboam flees to Egypt. There's Egypt. Come on down here and go to that wall. All right. Okay. And stay there because Jeroboam is in Egypt. Solomon is still in power. Good. We're all good here. Okay. So Solomon stays in power until uh, Jeroboam flees to Egypt. He continues to reign, and Jeroboam stays there until Solomon dies, okay? So Solomon just dies of old age. I really can't say anything, you know. He sits in my blood, too, so I guess I... <laughs> so Solomon is dead. Uh, Solomon, you can somehow come down off the stage. Um, your role is done. So who becomes king when a king dies? Usually the son, right? This is Rehoboam. Rehoboam, come on up and take Solomon's place. Rehoboam enters the scene. He's next in line for the throne, okay? He goes to Shechem because that's where people go to become king. All of Israel has gathered there. They're going to make him king. Now, Jeroboam has received a prophecy. No, no, you're going to get 10 of the kingdoms, right? 
and your enemy, Solomon, has died. So Jeroboam comes back out of Egypt. Go to your same spot there because, wait a second, he's supposed to be king too. Okay, he goes with the assembly of Israel, all gathered at Shechem, and they go to Rehoboam to question him. What kind of king are you going to be, right? Because King Solomon was a good king, but he placed them under some hard service, right? A yoke of hard service. And so they ask him, are you going to be as hard as your father or not? So Rehoboam seeks the counsel of his father's advisors, which is a wise thing to do, right? So Rehoboam asked, what do you think I should do? They respond, well, you probably should lighten the load. But then Rehoboam rejects the counsel of his advisors, not a good idea, and instead goes with the advice of his young friends. The advice of his young friends instead is to play the tough guy. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 10, this is that what they tell him to say. Say, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, got to show me a little finger there. And now I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. All right? So he says, I'm going to be a bad dude. Well, Israel doesn't want that kind of a king. And so they rebel against the house of David. They send for Jeroboam, and they make him king. They make him king of Israel, 10 tribes. And those 10 tribes go to the north of Israel. All right? Now, Rehoboam doesn't want that to happen. Rehoboam wants to be king. And he starts to muster an army to go against Jeroboam, but God stops him and says, no, I don't want you to do that because this whole thing, it's from me. I'm orchestrating it. Amazing, right? You got a lot of turmoil in the country, but God says, I'm doing it. So you got to let him go. So what you have is Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. Everyone good? Kingdom has been divided. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Now Jeroboam up in the north, not doing some good stuff. He begins to institute false idol worship. He kind of has to, because guess where the temple is where everyone worships? In the south with Rehoboam. So he doesn't want people going all the way down to the south to worship because, well, they might just stay and show allegiance to Rehoboam. So instead, he builds two golden calves. He says, these are now your gods, Israel. You don't need to go back to the temple. You don't need to go to the south. Don't go to Rehoboam. He places one of them in Dan and the other in Bethel. You can go see those places even today. I've been there, and you can see the center of false idol worship that an Israel king set up. Jeroboam did this. He goes outside of God's law. He appoints priests who are not Levites. They were supposed to be Levitical priests. He appoints priests that aren't Levites. He institutes a mock feast of booths. And because of everything that Jeroboam does— The next 19 kings, when you read through uh, these in the book of Kings, are all bad kings. They all follow the pattern of idol worship that Jeroboam instituted. And we're told this in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 21. For he tore Israel from the house of David. He did. He took him out of the house of David and went up north. And they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. Now, as you're reading these things, you have to start to understand that these two kingdoms have been given different names. You can't just say the kingdom of Israel, who are we talking about? So the kingdom of Israel is in the north. The kingdom of Judah is in the south. That's how they're divided, okay? 
And God is so displeased with what Jeroboam does, as you read in 2 Kings here, as I just did, he sends the king of Assyria to take him into captivity. And that is begun in 724 BC by the Assyrian commander, where are you? Shalmaneser V in the cowboy hat here. So Shalmaneser V comes in to the northern kingdom, go up to Jeroboam there. He conquers the kingdom and he leads Jeroboam and all of them out of uh, Egypt, uh, out of uh, Israel and into captivity. Off you go, Jeroboam. You're a captive now. All right. So that's what happens to Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. Thank you, guys. Now, Rehoboam is still in the south, but he doesn't do much better in terms of idol worship, okay? He sets up high places and pillars too, which is so strange because the temple is there. But we're told in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 22, now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah's the, the south, okay? And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Now, when you read through the kings and you find out about Judah's kings, they've had 20 kings and they're not all bad like the northern kings. So you find out that four of them are good. They follow the ways of the Lord. Four of them are a mixture of good and bad, but the rest of them all stink, okay? So God ends up judging Judah as well. Who does he send? He sends King Nebuchadnezzar. Come on, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Babylon begins conquering the land, and he starts that in 605 BC. That's when you read that he starts deporting people like Daniel, right? And his friends, uh, well, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their new names they get, but they're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He leads them into captivity, but he's doing that over the whole course of, of many years. And in 586 BC, which is almost a century and a half after the northern kingdom has fallen, Judah falls to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, you can take Rehoboam away into captivity as well. They have fallen. Yeah. Now stay right over there, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Now we hear this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah predicts that although um, Israel has been destroyed, Judah has been destroyed, the temple has been destroyed, Jerusalem has been sacked, that God is only going to take those children of Israel into captivity for 70 years. It's prophesied in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. It says this, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And then in Jeremiah 29.10, we're told this, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So 70 years end, okay, Nebuchadnezzar is in power, but a transfer of power takes place at the end of the 70 years. God raises up another nation, the kingdom of Persia. Now, a side note, when you go into the book of Daniel, all those succeeding kingdoms are prophesied about. Okay, you want to get your mind blown, go read the Bible and see that, oh yeah, okay, the kingdom of Babylon, it was prophesied that it would be succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's exactly what happens. God raises up a Persian ruler known as Cyrus the Great. Here comes Cyrus the Great. He is the great aristocrat. And he comes in and... He conquers Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he is the new power. He's the new power, the new kid on the block. And he conquers Babylon in 539 BC. So you can come down and conquer Nebuchadnezzar and you guys are done. Thank you for your help. Well done. Everybody follow that okay? Yeah, well done, you guys. 
Seventy years have ended. We're at the end of captivity, okay? Seventy years have gone by. They're in, they're in Babylon. And now what's God going to do? When you want to read about these things in the Bible, there's five biblical books that are useful for studying this. If you want to make a quick note, okay? There are three prophets that you can read. They're prophets of the restoration. They're called restoration because they come back to restore the temple, restore Jerusalem, okay? You can read Haggai, as we're going to study today. You can read Zechariah and Malachi. Guess what those are? Three last books of the Old Testament, okay? You can also read two historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know they're not organized necessarily chronologically. They're ordered according to what kind of book they are. So you're not going to find the books of history, Ezra and Nehemiah, with the prophets. I want to take you to Ezra. You've got to go to the beginning of your Bibles. You've got to go past First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and there you find Ezra. It's very important to start here in Ezra, even though we're going to start in Haggai. Because this is the Persian emperor, Cyrus. And something pretty, pretty amazing happens here. Cyrus is going to issue a decree, because it's been 70 years, and he's going to set the people free to go back and rebuild the temple. In Ezra chapter 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Remember the prophecies I just read? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heavens has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Amazing decree. God is going to stir up the heart of this man to make this decree. God needs a house and you need to go back and build it. Is that not incredible? And what's interesting is that 150 years before the event actually happens, and it's recorded in Ezra here, Isaiah prophesied about it. Isaiah chapter 44 Verses 24, and I also put in 28, you, you connect them all, it's just going on and on, so I kind of just put these two verses just to make it easier. He says this, thus, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, and he continues to say what, what he does. And it concludes, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, this is king of Persia, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isn't that amazing? 150 years before Cyrus would have been around, Isaiah prophesies this guy Cyrus is going to be the shepherd and tool of God. And here he is. In Ezra, we learn that that's exactly what happens in his first year, the first reign, so that the Jeremiah's prophecy would come to pass. And Isaiah's, um, we're told that he issues this decree. Now, look down to verse 5 to see how the people respond to this decree. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So the people responded, right? They're finally free, no longer in captivity, and they get to go back. Now, skip ahead to chapter 2 of Ezra, and look at verses 64 to 65, because I want you to see how they respond. First, they respond in a great number. 
Verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. So almost 50,000 people respond to travel 1,600 miles back to Jerusalem. They also respond financially in giving. Look at verse 69. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So these are a people eager to get back to work for the Lord. They respond in great number. They're, they're, they're giving, and they're excited about what's taking place. This is a great movement of the Lord to go and accomplish a great task, to go back and rebuild the temple. And what you read in, in Ezra chapter 3 is that they were successful. In, in the end of chapter 3, it just says that they're worshiping the Lord. The people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They're able to lay the foundation for the temple. But then we learn that the building begins to get challenged. When you get to chapter 4 of Ezra, we learn that there are adversaries in their area. And these adversaries, interestingly enough, are what will become the future Samaritans. Many of you know that the Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, all right? Well, that's because what happened was that when people were deported, they didn't leave the land completely empty. They left some people there, but they also sent some of their own people, the conquered uh, country leaves some of their own people there to intermarry and interbreed. And so what you have here is sort of an unpure, interbred community of people. And the Jews don't want to be with those people. They will become the Samaritans. And we're told in chapter 4 that there were adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And when they heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they wanted to be part of it. And Israel says, we can't have any part with you. And so they become their, their enemies. They begin to challenge the building. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that fact, they get so hot about it, they actually take it to the king, and the king ends up issuing a decree to stop the building, to stop the work. Now, this is very interesting. God has used a king to tell them to go work and do work for him, and now a king has told them to not work. What do you do? In chapter 4, verses 19 to 22, kind of lists what's written there and what, what takes place. But we're told in verse 24, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Enter Haggai. That leads us all the way up right to the book we're about to go in. In fact, if you go in chapter 5, you see Haggai enters even in the book of Ezra. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So if you would now turn to Haggai, you're going to go to the end of the Old Testament, and you're going to find it tucked right behind uh, Zechariah. And it's a small little book, only two uh, chapters, and this talks about exactly what Haggai came to uh, deliver. This takes place during the reign of Darius I. He was a general who rose to power following the death of Cyrus's son, Cambyses, and he reigned from 530 to 522 BC. But the, the specific mention here uh, in the second year of King Darius is important because that's the same thing Ezra said. 
right? And what that does is it places the book in the year 520 BC, which is where I began, okay? But if the, this is taking place in 520 BC, that tells us something. It tells us how long the work has been finished. Does anyone know? Any guesses how long that temple just sat um, unfinished? It's 15 to 16 years, okay? 15, 16 years, all right? Now, just look at our last year and a half. Like A lot can happen in a year, right? 15, 16 years, nothing has been happening. And it just makes you wonder, well, what have the people been doing? They've given up uh, the work of the Lord. There was a great movement. The Lord stirred up the spirit of this king. He sent all these people back. There was great excitement. Two leaders are leading them, Zerubbabel and Joshua. They're kind of spearheading this whole thing. But somehow, they become disillusioned. They become discouraged. They, they lacked motivation. And so this has been a hard time for the people of Israel. This last year and a half for God's people even today has been a hard time. We were at a conference yesterday for Calvary Chapel uh, pastors and leaders and many testimonies of, of pastors sharing how uh, you know they had exciting things uh, taking place. God had opened this door for this movement or this uh, ministry um, and yet COVID came in and everything ceased, right? And now they're trying to get the momentum back. For some, it just was their meetings that, you know, just, just getting back to, to, to meeting, trying to get things going again. And so I think we can get some insight from this book. I think we've been through a difficult time. Maybe people are coming out just discouraged, like how are we, have we lost momentum? And, and personally, as a pastor here of this church, I don't feel like we have because we've been able to meet and continue on the work of the Lord, the work that God's called us to do. But when the work is shut down and people are discouraged, and listen, that happens. We talked to a lot of people. You know, they just, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't continue on. And it's hard to get the encouragement to go on. So rather than ridicule, rather than, um, you know, fault them and discourage them, they need encouragement. They need motivation. Maybe there's people here today that would like to hear what Haggai said to the people then. I think we can get some insights from this book. So if you found your way to Haggai, we're just going to look at this first uh, chapter, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses. Beginning in verse 1, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains on the grain and on the new wine, the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shittiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And we thank you, Lord, even as we go into this period of history and we've had to sort of travel uh, through time and try to find our way uh, here, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would speak to us, that we would find this a relevant passage even for today. As you spoke to a discouraged and disillusioned people through a prophet, Lord, you can speak to us today through your word. So we just pray that the great illuminator of truth, the Holy Spirit, would do that today, Lord, bring to light these truths that we might find uh, encouragement and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sorry for that long and lengthy intro. I never like to go to new books and really not have people understand where we are and what we're talking about. And I think it makes it very important that we understand maybe what the mindset of the people might have been at this point, right? Really excited. They've been in captivity. They're free. They come back. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's put on hold. And now it's just been quiet for 15, 16 years. And so here you have in verse 1 just telling us that God has sent Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, and to Je- Jehozadak. And here's the message that he gives them, and, and it's in verse, verse 2. He says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. So remember, prophets would just speak and say, This is the word of the Lord. And this is what he says. This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So here's the first point. This is the people's excuse, right? This people's excuse. that The prophet has shown up, And he has basically said, okay, so the people think it's not time. It's not time. Okay, if it's not time to build the temple, when is the time, right? If God is calling us, if God's leading us to work for him, when is the time to act, right? That's the question. If I've called you to go do this and you say it's not the time, well, then when is the time? Who's the better one that knows time more, you you or or, or God? (laughs) God does, right? And we were just at this conference, like I said, and many, many of these similar comments were made uh, among the pastors that um, a lot of prayer can go in to, uh, to, to, to in preparation for ministries and things. A lot of them talked about prayed for years for this ministry to begin in this town or that a church we planted here, right? Years and years of hard pray. But then, but then when God decides to act, then it happens quick, right? When, when he, because it's his time. Right? And when he does it, it goes, and it goes fast. And I just wonder if, if we just don't get in the way sometime because we say, well, it's not the best time, right? I, I don't think it's time. God began to work on our heart even before we knew it would be time to do something like come to Wales, right? He began to just plant little things and, and, and kind of put things in there. But listen, when it's God's time, then we're to act even if there's opposition in the world. And all you have to do is look back at the great missionaries of the past, right? I wonder what, what, what would China be like had Hudson Taylor stopped at the first opposition or roadblock that he came across. Uh, you read about him, right? He, he got there and he suffered tremendous hardship and loss 
He went through obstacle after obstacle. And, and by our way of looking at things, we could say, oh, the Lord's not in it. He's just not opening doors, right? It's just hard going. But no, he kept going back to, no, the Lord has called me to do this, and I'm going to do it in spite of opposition. You read about William Carey. What would the condition be of the people of India had he not uh, persevered? These people had no funding even, and they just said, we've, this, we've got to carry this through. God has called us to do this. And the hardships for the people during this period, right, that they, they had endured really has long since ceased. They've been out of captivity. They've been back home now. They rebuilt the, the foundation of the temple, and now it's been 15, 16 years. The call of God, us too far in the past. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just not the right time. And so you know what God does? He sends a person. He sends a prophet. He sends someone who's a motivator to encourage them. But I think time is our big excuse anyway, don't you? Right? Oh, what's your prayer life like? Oh, it's not very really good. I, just, I don't have enough time. Right? Bible reading, I don't have enough time. Getting involved in ministry, I don't have enough time. Focus on your marriage. Oh, we just don't have enough time. We're so busy. We're so busy. We're so busy. We don't have enough time. The truth is we all have the same amount of time. It's just how we choose to use it, how we choose to prioritize it. And they had chosen this as an excuse, the great excuse that we all use to justify our actions. The truth is we just make a choice, and they made a choice. What choice did the people make? Well, God kind of tells us what their choice was, and this is God's response to them here in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and the temple to lie in ruins? I, I love that. It's almost sort of like, uh, you know, smart alecky God here, right? Oh, it's not time. But it is time for you to go and dwell in your nice paneled houses. Paneled. Right? These aren't just little tents. You've gone and gotten wood. You've built nice, luxurious houses for yourself that are paneled houses. And yet... My temple lies in ruins. So is it time for that then? Because didn't I give you an order to go and do this, to build my temple? Isn't that what I've called you to do? You know, I think in the Western church for years, and this is obviously in the context of COVID, a whole different thing, but, you know, it's just been, I think, affluence um, and uh, gaining, gaining possessions and money that I've seen in the, in the Western churches more that just drive people to kind of just be distracted by what the Lord wants to do. And I found this quote by Harry Ironside, and he says this about this passage in Haggai. He says, Alas, how much is sacrificed for money? Christian fellowship, the joys of gathering at the table of the Lord, gospel work, and privileges of mutual edification and instruction in divine things are all parted with often simply because the opportunity arises of adding a few paltry dollars to the monthly income and savings. Brethren with families even will leave a town or a city where the spiritual support and fellowship of their brethren is found and where their children have the privilege of the gospel meeting and the Sunday school simply because they see or fancy they see an opportunity to better their earthly circumstances. Alas, in many instances, they miss all they had hoped for and lose spiritually what is never regained. I saw that many a time. People just upped and moved because, well, this better job came up. We just, you know, don't make enough money. But they were, kids were doing great spiritually in the church, right? They were really plugged in. Things were, we just, we so easily moved by the wrong things. These people did the same thing, right? The failure to rebuild the temple was a direct result of inverted priorities. That's what it is, right? 
And what are inverted priorities? If we invert priorities, that's misplaced worship. What's misplaced worship? That's an easy one. We just saw it up here. Idolatry. It is. It is. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, we're told. You guys are familiar with Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, ah, there your heart will be also. See, the time, time is never the issue for any of us. The issue is the heart. That's, that's my issue. Folks, I, I have the same problem, struggle of prayer. Ah, I just don't seem to have time. No, my heart, my heart has to get right. I got to get my priorities right if I want to have time with the Lord in the proper ways. So here he says, well, it looks like you have time for yourselves. Your priorities are misplaced. So he says, really, these two arguments, that's the one. The second is what I've titled the whole series, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Look at verse five. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your Ways. Give careful thought to your ways, which means you have to stop, right? When life is just careening out of control and you don't know what to do, I, my first advice would be to stop, right? Stop. Take some time away to consider your ways. Jody and I have to do that all the time to go, have we gotten off track? Are our priorities wrong? Are we, are we putting the right attention to the kids? Are we focusing right enough on this and on that? Are, because you easily get drawn off track. You just, you just do. And so God is so gracious here saying, I want you to stop. All right, stop. Consider your ways. Look at your life. What are you doing? And what he's doing is he's drawing them to look and evaluate what is actually happening. You, you put things before God. So, so how has that worked out for you, right? Let me just, let me just look, look at that with you. We need to evaluate our lives. That's what we have to do. I thought about my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies, the psalmist says. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. We're told these things in, in Scripture, but these people, they've chosen to go off track. And so God asks them, how, how has that worked out for you? And then, then he tells them, he's like, if you're not going to look at it, let me look at it with you. And did you just love verse 6 when we read through that? You've sown much, like you've worked a lot, but has much come from that? Yeah, you brought in little. You eat, yeah, but you, you don't actually have enough. You, you drink, but you're not really filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes, right? You just keep trying. Does this sound familiar? This is our early married life, Jody and I, right? We weren't really walking with the Lord. We'd go to church whenever we felt like it, right? It wasn't a priority. And pursue career, pursue these things. But we could never get ahead. That so rang true to me when I read that verse. It's like putting money into a bag with holes. Like, where'd it go, Right? And we're just getting in debt, and we just couldn't seem to make right decisions. And you know what we needed to do? We need to reevaluate our priorities, right? We're, we're not giving priority to God, to spiritual things. You know, recalling the uh, initial response of the Israelites, you know, you look back to them, the initial response to the miracles, the, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, pretty amazing. But the psalmist records how quickly that changed. Psalmist uh, writes in 106, 12, then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Verse 13, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request. What's the request? But sent leanness into their soul. Just, just lean, nothing really there. 
And listen, when life starts to look like that, you have to stop and reassess your priorities, right? Something's going wrong. In fact, it's so important to stop and consider your ways. God says it twice here. You see it again in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We've just got to stop. It's one of the reasons we started to homeschool. To be honest, Jody was the, you know, on this band, bandwagon with a, a, a family member of homeschooling. I, had, I didn't experience that. I was like, what is homeschool? What are you talking about? Um, you, know, you know why it was foreign to me? I never considered it. I just did what you do. Same thing with dating, right? In high school. We dated in high school, those kind of things. You'll, you'll go through this when you come to our parenting thing. Why do we do that? Do we do it because that's what people do? It, we actually, actually we had to stop and consider our ways. Say, but is that the best thing to do? Because what does that usually end up in? I had a pastor that used to say, you know what dating I call dating? I said, what is it? He's like, preparation for divorce. <laughs> like, oh, right, really, right? Because you get in this relationship where no one has any commitment or any responsibility whatsoever. No, right? There's no commitment there to do anything for that person, but only to get what you want. And if you don't, well, you can go to get that from someone else. It's just preparation for divorce. Like, oh, wow. And so we've raised our kids differently in that, but we had to stop first and consider, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it just because our parents did that? And listen, that's usually the first mistake. We parent usually by the way we were parented, right? Unless we really had a bad thing, we go, I don't want that. But we typically just do it how we've seen it done. That's not always the best thing. We need to take it to God's word and consider our ways. Why are we doing what we're doing? That's extremely important. Twice he says it, consider your ways. Now here comes God's rebuke in verse 8. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. That's the, that's the bottom line. I haven't been glorified. Whatever you're doing, I haven't been glorified. So guess what? There's no wood anymore because you've used it. <laughs> you've paneled your houses. So now you need to go and work. Go up to the mountain, get the wood, bring it back, build the temple so I can take pleasure in that and get the glory that is due me. And then he reveals why they're earning wages and putting it into bag with holes. Guess where all that came from? Him. Look what he says in, in verses 9 to 11. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. When we were first coming to grips with these truths, I, I, I remember uh, one of my pastors uh, said, you know, I find that when, when I'm not right with the Lord, um, he, he says, he sends, he, he, sends, he sends something into my life that takes some of those things away. And the first thing I go, oh, that's right, you know, I got a flat tire, this broke down, that water heater broke, this, all these. Now, sometimes those things happen, right? But you start to put it together, go, hang on a second, what's going on here? He says, I realize, like, oh, I wasn't right with the Lord. And, and sometimes I think we do need to look at that because it happened here, right? Were you wondering why you couldn't do that? Oh, I did it. And you brought that home, guess what happened to it? I blew it away. He's like, I'm trying to get your attention. You're spinning your wheels here, guys. He says, consider your ways. I want you to look at me. Am I getting glory in your life? I'm not, he says, because the temple isn't there, right? Now, we don't have a temple today, but you are the temple. You are the temple of living God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. How are you at taking care of that temple, right? Holy Spirit's in it. 
pretty, pretty hard to think about that, isn't it? Oh, man, yeah, what's my thought life been like, right? Hmm. How, how's my speech been? How, how have I been in my relationship to my, my wife and my children, my coworkers? I wonder if the temple of the living God is a suitable temple. It is suitable. I don't mean that the Lord has chosen to dwell there. His mercy endures forever, right? And His mercy is new every morning. But, but we need to take that into consideration, don't we? Consider your ways. And I think, you know, the people of Israel here remembered the covenant that God had made with them when he says this to them. Because the covenant clearly stated that, that he would bless them if they obeyed, but that he would discipline them if they disobeyed. You know, that shouldn't be a surprise that God would discipline. He's a father, right? A father's a good father, would discipline to, to correct us, to bring us back to him. It's not punitive. It's not meant to punish. That's not what God, God's a loving father. And so he wants to bring us back to the right path. And in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 to 20, this is where he stated all that. He says, after all this, if you don't obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. What's he trying to break there? The pride of your power, right? Your own self-will. I want to bring you back to rely on me. That's what he's trying to do. And sometimes I think we need that discipline. We need to realize that our priorities are out of alignment and need realigning. So how do the people respond to this? Look at verse 12, an amazing response. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Notice those two key words in there, obedience and fear, right? Those two things. It's a reverent fear. I don't fear God. He's my father, but I have a reverent fear for him. I serve the Lord with fear. And are we to fear him or fear man? Fear him. Fear him. I remember when I was working in, a, in the movie industry, and I had a great job there, and, and really hard to get into it, and uh, high paying. And when the Lord was calling me into ministry, I got a lot of flack for that. A lot of guys were saying, you're stupid. Stupid. You are set for life. Why would you do that? You're going to go work at a church for, for what? For pennies? Why would you, you know, do that? At the end of the day, I had to go, well, who do I fear? Who do I fear here? Do I fear man? Do I fear God? I fear God. God is calling me to do this. I've got to do it. And he's been faithful. I've never looked back at that. Never. Never with, with regret. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It begins there. It's, it's the fear that says, Lord, you have the power. <laughs> It's you, I give it all to you. Because I'm trying to steer this ship, and I just keep running aground. Would you do it? Would you do it? Give it to him. Listen, if you don't fear him, we really won't obey him. So Haggai gives one more message of the Lord here in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. That's his whole message there. I'm with you. You know what? That should be all that we need to hear. Oh, guess what? We did hear it because Jesus said it to us, didn't he? He did. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and he spoke to them and he said, and here's your mission, folks. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We get the same message to us today, folks. They were encouraged by that message. And don't worry, I'm with you. The Lord says that. He's with you. Jesus says that to us today. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Christ is with us. I'm with you to the very end of the age. In verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, the host their God. You know, a similar stirring happened back in uh, uh, Exodus when they were building the tabernacle, didn't it? God needed all these things to build the tabernacle, and their spirits were stirred up to, to bring and, and offer things for the building of the tabernacle. Here again, because of that encouraging message, I am with you. Now listen, don't forget, that was on the message of discipline, right? right? Now you've, you've had a hard life. Guess what? I brought that hardness into you. You've had a lean knife life. I brought that leanness into your life, but I got your attention now, right? Get your priorities right, and listen, I'm going to be with you. That's the most encouraging message ever, right? I'm with you. Don't worry. I've got it. And guess what? Their spirits were stirred up by that. Oh, yes. And they got on with the work. Do you want the Lord to stir your spirit up? Ask him to enlarge your heart for him. There's a great psalm, Psalm 119.32. I will run the course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart. Open my heart for you. Right now, it's a little closed off because I'm there, <laughs> Right? Kevin's sitting on the throne a bit here, and sometimes Kevin needs to move off and let Christ reign. Make my heart broad is really the idea there. Breath of heart or mind is really an expanded ability to, to perceive God's truth. God, this is true, and I love you, and I want to serve you. And here's the conclusion, the amazing conclusion to this thing, right? They're stirred up, and they came, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Haggai spoke the word of the Lord, we're told, on the first day of the month. And by the, what's it here, the 24th day, a little more than uh, three weeks then, three weeks later, they're all busy working on the house of the, the Lord there. And the year is 520 BC. That's a, a key moment in Jewish history uh, for the Jewish people. Nearly 50,000 people traveled these 1,600 miles, right, to go and, and start this temple work, and then it, it, it stopped. But now it, re, it, it was able to be uh, rebuilt. And we learn it was never to its original uh, glory like Solomon's uh, temple, but it was rebuilt so that the Lord could be glorified. Now today, what does the Lord want us to do? He just wants us to proclaim his word. He wants us to make disciples, right? He wants us to, to, to listen to him, to be stirred up uh, by him. But your priorities need to get straightened out, right? If you're not feeling that, you're not hearing that, you know, ask the Lord to just open your heart to that and say, Lord, I want to put you first, right? Will you put God first in everything or will you be like Solomon? Remember Solomon? He clung to these things in love because he did that. God ripped the kingdom out of his hands. Maybe for you, he's just been, you know, discouraged in life, <laughs> difficult life, and you just need to be motivated. You need to be uh, encouraged to get back into the race, um, the Lord gives you that encouragement. I am with you. So be encouraged. Let me just give you a couple questions to ponder as you end today here. Is, is, my, is my own comfort, and I have to ask myself this sometimes too, is my, is my own comfort really of greater importance to me than the work of God? Like, is that going to be something that's 
a little uncomfortable for me to do. Uh, It doesn't really matter. God's called me to do it. We're to do it. Am I making increasing efforts to get ahead, you know, financially or in relationships or in work or whatever, but, but just finding greater and greater disappointments in my life? I just never seem to get ahead, right? Listen, give that a rest. Consider your ways. Get on with God's business. Give that a shot. I don't think you'll go wrong, right? Give it to him. So Haggai gave this encouraging message. He stirred the people to um, come back to rebuild the temple. We'll look at some more messages next week. Let me just pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for this little book here, Haggai, and for the prophet who is obedient, faithful to you, Lord, to go and to speak to these people. But we thank you for the response of the people, Lord, from a very simple message, really a very simple message. It wasn't a long sermon that Haggai gave, gave just a very simple message, called them out on their sin, their excuses. No, it's not about time. No, it's not about that. You just don't want to do it. And so he said, listen, this is why these things are happening. But if you just get the priorities back on your life, Lord, get those things straight. I will be with you. I will be with you and I will bless you. And Lord, I've seen that true time and time again. It doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily be uh, prosperous and, and have riches and wealth and all those things as the messages come to us from other, other pastors all often that it's about the health and their wealth. It's not about those things. It's about being right with you. Living successfully means living for you. I cannot judge my success in life by my station in life, but by whether I'm faithful to you. So may we be faithful to you. We're your people. We love you. We praise you. We want to serve you. We want to bring you glory. So Lord, would you just just show us each individually where we are and what we need to change to get our lives back right with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.